Sorry. Still too loud. I have to fix something about that intro jingle. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, welcome. If we're talking very loud, <laughs> your arm just blasted out eardrums like um, with very loud mop, intro music. Mop, what they're always doing in Archer when, when an explosion goes off next to their ears. This That's is how a great I feel show. right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, hello, welcome to Plants and Pipettes. We're a podcast and we talk about plant science. I'm Tegan. I'm Joram. And today we have a special guest that you won't be able to hear, but I have on my headphones the baby monitor of my little one sleeping. Um, so it's especially exciting for me um, because while I'm listening to exciting science told by Tegan, I also listen to the faintest noises of my baby. So I make sure that he's asleep and not awake. <laughs> and if your arm has to leave to like make the baby sleep again. I don't know, rocket. I guess you rock babies. <laughs> then you just get to hear a monologue for me for the next like half an hour or two hours or however long it takes to make a baby <laughs> yes. go back to sleep again. Many it, hours, I, I, I suspect. Yeah, probably until tomorrow morning at six or something. <laughs> I'll just be gone monologue and you'll be monologuing because I will keep everything running here. But I'll use my calming voice. This is the voice I'm using now. <laughs> yeah, maybe that would be good for the baby, actually. Um, Do you actually find it calming? Because most people... Tell me it's unnerving. I think it depends on the context. Like if The context is usually I'm doing like a doll face and pretending to be like a doll at the same time. And probably also like at, at, at work <laughs> or in a context where you don't want to be soothed by like a Like just in the bathroom, just like poking my head over the cubicle. Hello, how are you today? Yes. <laughs> how is exactly. it going? Um, yeah, there I would also uh, agree with unnerving. Mm. I think my, my voice, the, the, my natural tone is i don't know not soothing what is it like it's alerting i would say maybe <laughs> like yeah i would screeching <laughs> hard to fall asleep to <laughs> but it's good uh, like dude i don't want our listeners to fall asleep to this podcast they should be highly alert at that, all that's times. what i'm here for just to keep everybody awake <laughs> and on, on the edge slightly of the anxious like in case the world is not making you anxious enough my voice <laughs> is here to do that for you like add a little bit of extra yeah uh, i think it's time that you apologize tegan I don't. I didn't agree to any apology. Like, why? Oh, Yarm. So Yarm writes show notes for what we're going to talk about. Um, because Yarm is more organized than me, and apparently, Tegan apologizes <laughs> for being too beautiful. It says, "Is that is that what you're writing it's, here?" It, like, it's not what it says. I would never <laughs> state such a fake news. Um, Dear statement. listeners, I'm sorry if you felt strange <laughs> because I. No, I didn't forget. Because circumstances meant the recording didn't happen. How else you do like fake people's apologies? Like these apologies, it's not an apologies. Very um, much a non-apology. Yeah, if you feel that it's having, I, I'm, I'm sad for your feelings of, yeah. Um, I forgot I'm, to record. I forgot to press the record button last time, guys. So I'm sorry if the quality was a bit shitty in places. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, personally, I thought that Yoram was good enough at technology to fix that, but... Apparently, he's not doing his job and he can't make my voice magically appear out of the air when I don't actually record yeah. things. So. I mean, I, I record on my end, but then when there is a breakup in the connection, um, there's nothing I can do. Apparently, you can't fix it. Yeah, there's just no signal. D disappointed. I mean, I think I speak for the listeners when 
I say we're disappointed. <laughs> and I also have to apologize. Um, <laughs> I just realized when I looked at the at the blog this this morning and um, about our overview of the articles that we published, and I always draw this little image um, as a featured image, it's sort of the article image, and it always has a blob of color in the background, and on top of that is some like science related things. Um, and then I looked at the ones that I wrote and the ones that Tegan wrote, and I realized that all of mine were like tints of blue. And Tegan's were like shades of purple or pink. Um, and I want to say, I'm sorry, I didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> I didn't make like the girls' articles all purplish and the boys' articles all blue. Um, it was a coincidence. And I'm very sorry um, <laughs> because I, I want to be better than that. <laughs> Nobody cares. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. I, I, I care mean, if because you had done it. It would be quite funny if you'd done it deliberately for the next six months and like to, <laughs> to try and back. work out if I noticed, like just kind of like, hey, 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 Tegan, hey. Like, yeah. um, I would not have noticed. Um, yeah. No, it's also, it's it's just because uh, we started daycare now and when you start daycare, you have to buy new things um, like backpacks and extra clothes and all of these things. And you look at what the other kids already have and you realize how many of them are completely gendered. They're like not even one and a half years old. And the girls run around in pretty little dresses and the boys have uh, construction machinery on their shirts. Um, and suddenly you realize uh, when you think about getting new things, like maybe I, like, I should look for other stuff. If it helps, I sent like a pink jacket for your tiny child to wear. But Didn't arrive yet. It's never. It hasn't come. It's been like a month now, so I assume it's it's gone. I th I think maybe Germany has stopped post coming from the UK just because the situation is not great here. I mean, also spite. I was gonna say Corona, but I mean, probably also spite. I if I were them, I would I would feel spite because um, that would have been sent a month ago. Yeah. But it's definitely pink-ish associated. So yeah. yeah. Anyway. What is um, International Joe Day? It's International Joke Day for somebody who's not very good at spelling. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was about but like the you baby. you laughed, so therefore I'm pretty sure I'm winning. See? It's See? about the baby kangaroos, aren't they called joeys? Joeys, yeah. Yeah, so I thought okay, it's so about Okay, so I them. made you laugh already on International Joke Day. Now you tell me a joke. Um... um I don't know yeah. any jokes. I try to come up with dad jokes on the spot when the occasion arises. Mm. Um, I think you're quite good at dad jokes, like bad puns. I mean, I pretty much have to now. Otherwise, I take the baby away. I don't want that <laughs> yeah. to happen. Um, yeah, the only jokes I tell are the single cheese joke that is the best joke in the world, and I refuse to tell any other jokes. So that's I have it. a joke. Um, why why did the man with the glasses fall into the well? I don't know, Yoram. Why did the man with the glasses fall into the well? He couldn't see that well. Okay, that's quite cute. <laughs> <laughs> and as a man with the glasses, I feel it's okay for you to, to make a joke about the man with the glasses. I think, is that the rule? Yeah. Maybe. Woo! Um, what have you been doing recently? I, I mean, I put put henna as my notes because I have reached the body modification part of COVID isolation. So I guess three or four weeks ago, I tried to get my housemate to perm my hair. Um, it didn't work, but the plus side is it also didn't make my hair like burn off and fall out. So I think it's like <laughs> the outcome was actually, I would say quite neutral. Like it made curls and then they immediately fell out before I even washed my hair. So <laughs> like curls fell out, hair didn't fall out. We're fine. Um, and then 
a couple of days ago, I tried to give myself fake freckles because one of our um, friends, one of Yoram's real life friends and an Instagram friend of ours um, was doing it with makeup. And I was like, oh, I've got henna, which I can do something with. And then, yeah. So I'm thinking a piercing is probably next, that or a tattoo. These are my <laughs> options. But tattoo yeah. guns are very hard to find. I, I think have it, to like, say the henna freckles, they look really nice. Um, yeah, I mean, they look cute on, on photos, but close up, it, it looked like head drawn on my face with a texture, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. <laughs> like, I mean, they've faded now. They, they were okay, but like, I don't have that hand-eye coordination. I mean, which is probably a good sign going into the let's try a tattoo thing. I know that I do not have the, the fine precision I mean, hand. You don't have to tattoo yourself, right? Like, usually you go to a person that tattoos you unless you're in prison. My cat can probably draw. <laughs> I mean, the whole well, point is the I'm claws, in. They ha- get, it dips the, its claws in a little oh, bit of ink and yeah. then like pierces your skin. Aren't cat claws supposed to be like one of the most disgusting, like germ-ridden things that you could ever I something know something? If they, if they scratch you and you're unlucky, you get like horrendous infections. But I think the, their bites are worse. Like, um, like their saliva is riddled with the most disgusting microbes. Um, so that's that's worse than the scratches. Because I've been scratched a couple of times and it never really uh, got infected. I feel, I feel like I um, read a paper on this once about bites, and, and it was like, what's the most what's the most common animal a human gets bitten by? Uh, the dog or a cat, I would say, or a cow. Incorrect. It's a human. <laughs> Yeah, and, and human bites are also really um, devastating, right? Like they yeah, also get gross. super infected, and I'm yeah. I'm not entirely sure about that that science, guys. So don't quote me on that. But I feel like I read like a really long time ago. I think there was a top three, and it was definitely dog, cat, and human. And I was like, what? I didn't even think of humans biting other humans. But it, it's mostly obviously children playing and. I mean, you, your kid's just going to the kindergarten I'm, now. You, you'll get to see this. This will yeah. be fun. Yeah, yeah. He, I hope. he already bites my shoulder when he's on my arm and stuff, so... That's um, good. He'll have a, an advantage over the other children. He's the biter, not the bitey. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Just <laughs> fill his mouth up with, like, Komodo dragon-esque bacteria before you send him to the kitta so that he really, like, <laughs> reigns supreme <laughs> in the playground. <laughs> <laughs> just it's, like this baby with like drool and like I don't know what is the Komodo dragon like dead rotting flesh hanging out of their mouth um, <laughs> he's mm. feared by all of the other kindergartners um yeah what uh, did the, what else have we been doing um today I I watched actually another talk with um Angela Saini who I was talking about uh last week I guess mm-hmm. so it might sound a bit um deja vu-ish um, she's a journalist who recently wrote this book called Superior, which is about um, race um, in the context of science. And I said, I talked about this a little bit um, last week, but I just, I heard another talk from her today. So I think, I think she doesn't want them to be recorded because this one said it wasn't recorded at the request of the speakers. So um, keep an eye out in case she's doing anything else, because I think they're quite nice to listen to. Uh, I thought this was... Like, what I got from this one that was a little bit different, it was a bit more about kind of the science context um, this time around. And she really was ramming home the fact that we have this idea of science as being separate from politics, that science is this kind of pure thing, you know, we are seeking the truth. But she was really underlining science is has never been separate for politics and it will never be separate from politics. And this is even more problematic because in the past, even more so than now, there was like very much the people who could do science were, you know, upper class white men um, and they had their specific politics. So it was like even a very small fraction of politics that was getting into it. But 
she was saying like there's this idea that it's better now that that was then and this is now and now like you know we've we've solved that where science is is pure and better but it's, it's not the case and she used a really exam- nice example of like the current covid situation so um when covid first happened there was this this rumor at the start that non-white people were just not getting COVID. They, they, they maybe couldn't get COVID. There was something racially different or genetically different, which was meant that mm. it was different, which I didn't remember this rumor. I didn't, I didn't hear about it or I forgot about it already now. Um, but this was at the very start. Um, and this was, again, it was put on genetics, whereas probably it was just simply the fact that there was a lot of like people moving around the world. And that was like um, wealthier people that it was targeting. So there was like social implications of what's happening, not um, genetic implications. Mm. And then like... Suddenly, like within a couple of weeks of that, it became clear that black people were having like higher risk rates of of serious illness from COVID. And again, people were like, oh, maybe this is for genetic. It's exactly the opposite argument, but still, oh, maybe there's a genetic reason why black people are getting COVID more. And it's like, no, it's a social issue. Like there's there's problems with our system, which makes this and. This is this is happening today. So this is the, she was basically arguing. You know, we we think now the science we're doing now is purer and is better, but it's not pure pure and better. Um, so I really like that discussion. I'm sorry that I paraphrased it really poorly just then. You should definitely go and try and listen to her talk about it. Um, she obviously knows what she's talking about so very much. I mean, she she wrote this book. She's obviously done a lot of research, and she just knows her her. Shit. Um, but. What I really liked that she sort of said as something that can be done in the future is that science courses at universities, they need to introduce the historical and social context of science. So not just be like, oh, this is science, we only learn about science, but learn about how those scientific ideas developed because they didn't develop in a vacuum and they didn't develop in the context of something that's pure and like they were made by humans and humans are flawed and the societies these humans live in have been very heavily biased and mm-hmm. and horrible and still are. So we need to be interpreting our science with that. So I thought that was really interesting again, yeah. And again, she she was she's just a really great speaker and it was really cool to hear stuff from her. Yeah, uh, we put a link to her social media in the show notes. So make sure you follow her so that when the next time a talk is coming up, you won't miss it. They might not be recorded, so yeah, make sure that you follow and see them live. Shall we talk about science a little bit? Like science adjacent today. Today is the week where we don't talk about the paper, but instead about the stuff. (laughs) Nah, I'm going to talk about the paper. My favorite plant. Uh, I think it's my turn to do my favorite plant. I hope so, because I prepared it. Um, My (laughs) favorite plant is not really a plant. It's a single-celled organism, but it does have a chloroplast. So it's in this huge group of green things that Mm -hmm. photosynthesize called um, viridi plantae, um, which is basically the kind of um, like kingdom level of green plants. So... um, there was originally cells which ultimately became like animals that didn't have a chloroplast and then there was this like event where a um, photosynthesizing kind of um, cyanobacteria bacteria was taken up by this single-celled eukaryote and then that became the chloroplast so the photosynthesizing cyanobacteria kind of got tamed and um, yeah ultimately became this this organelle and 
those things, some of them diverged and became red algae and another group called glucophytes. But then a lot of what we know is this viridiplantae, which is this huge group that includes algae and also um, land plants, everything we kind of see and think that's mm-hmm. a plant. Um, and what I want to talk about today is a special species of, um, yeah, this single-celled thing called Prasinoderma coloniale. Um, yeah. So there was a publication that came out in Nature Eco Ecology and Evolution, I should say the full name. Um, it was by Linzo Lee Sibo Wang. It's joint first authorship, I believe, um, at Al. And they were doing uh, the genome. They they sequenced the genome of this uh, species. And this species is really um, important because it reveals that there are now three phyla within the plant, um, Viridi plantae. So previously, if you look at plants, you can basically break them down. So there's like thousands and thousands of, of different plant species, maybe 500,000 different species within Viridi plantae, which is this huge bubble. But they can all be stripped into two different things. There's either um, the streptophyta, which is land plants and and some algae, some streptophyte algae, basically. And then there's the other one, which is the chlorophyta, which is basically almost everything else in the algae family. And people have been kind of looking at the evolution and how these these things came about, how these two um, different divisions sort of or phyla budded. And they want to go back to the start. They want to basically find the missing link mm-hmm. that is um, between these two to, to, to work out the evolutionary history. And people have looked at some different single-celled organisms to try and see which of them is likely to be something near a common ancestor, and there's not been much luck. But this group did some sequencing of um, this little bugger, which is Prasinoderma coloniale, and they found that it is separate from um, the two different divisions in equal ways, basically, Mm -hmm. which means that it doesn't belong to either of the divisions. It actually has its own division. So... It's kind of a bit of a missing link, but also kind of the the third missing sibling family member um, of these these huge groups. So it can also give some ideas about the the gradual evolution of plants um, and how they came to be. So if you look at now this organism, this group, and then the members from the other groups, you can see what are the minimal amounts of genes, for example, that you need to be considered like a Verita plantae, kind of a, a plant-like mm-hmm. thing. So. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting and important research. Um, the The organism itself is not much to look at. It's like a little tiny single-celled blob, so I can't say much about how beautiful it is, but I think it um, <laughs> has an important role in understanding the history of plants and how they kind of came to be and develop in this world. And it also doesn't happen too often, right, that we introduce completely new large groups in in this big tree of life right um i mean i'm not too deep into the whole phylogenetic studies that i can actually say if (laughs) i don't have any evidence for my claim but to me it sounds like (laughs) it's very often like on on a larger level these things are pretty set like uh, like we find more like we reorganize like families and so on um but usually on this larger level we don't often introduce new groups and reorganize them yeah i mean i think there's there's a ton of like 
the more access we have to sequencing, the more we realize that there are new species belonging to new categories that we didn't know about all the time. But you're definitely true. This is um, like the very top of the tree. So it's the equivalent, like the different phyla are the difference between like a mollusk and uh, a segmented worm and a like, I don't know, it's this kind of separation of, of organisms. So it, it's right at that, that top class there. Not mm. class, I shouldn't use the word class, but... um. Level. Yeah. Level. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I'm trying to get a list of like the, the animal kingdoms, but I believe that there are just like, sorry, the animal um, phyla, but I think that there like are just so many more than the, we, we learned a basic like seven or something in school. And I think now it says there are 35 maybe. Yeah. In animals, yeah, because I think I think phyla would not be the right level. I think that's actually lower than what this is because this is I think it changes anyway. That's what I wanna say. Um like in the paper they definitely use the the phrase division slash phyla, but I'm not sure how equivalent that is to the animal phyla that we know, which is like this, you know, round worm, round segmented worm, flat worm. Um, mm-hmm. spongy thing there's kind of yeah I don't know how that is equivalent but I think that's not my problem I think that's a problem for people who deal with animals <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, can I just say that yeah I think I think that's fine I think we don't have to understand animals because they don't fix their own carbon I don't really yeah. think they matter that way even if we understood them we didn't we don't respect them that's, <laughs> a, that's something I've stolen from my ex and I'm never giving it back to him I find it hilarious <laughs> Okay, um, then let's move on. So um, this week, it is me talking about um, a person um, that's a non-Y male uh, in an important role concerning plant science. And I'm making this sort of bigger statement um, this week because usually we try to actually go for plant scientists, um, uh, often botanists, but also like yeah anything directly adjacent to plant science. Today I have someone, because it's a bit more topical, um, who is involved in the conservation um, of biodiversity and that includes plants and animals that don't really fix carbon. So the importance species like plants and the less important species like animals <laughs> and um, that is Elizabeth Mrema um, who was appointed executive secretary of the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity also called CBD and that makes her the first woman from Africa to lead this intergovernmental body which is one of the I think highest level um yeah, bodies that deal with biodiversity and so that's really cool to to have her in that position um, and the main role of the cbd is that it set up sets up targets for biodiversity um, in agreement or like they they pretty much make out contracts and agreements with uh, stakeholders uh, around the globe um, and figure out yeah targets to work towards uh for to increase biodiversity or at least uh, preserve it um uh-huh. and reduce its dis- uh, reduce its destruction um and i found an interesting article or interview with her at nature um that we'll link in the show notes and because there's not so much known about her personal life i sort of want to talk a little bit about her current work uh, in terms of biodiversity um she uh 
the, the few things that I know or that I could find about her is that she's originally from the United Republic of Tanzania um, and has an education and career in law. Um, so that includes some positions where she worked in the uh, Center for Foreign Relations and Diplomacy in Tanzania and some other sort of higher up um, yeah, intergovernmental bodies that she was involved in. Um, and throughout her work, um, she often dealt with issues around biodiversity and the environment, environmental protection. So it's very, it, it seems to be a very important topic to her. And um, now she's acting towards increasing the biodiversity through regulating um, the use of wildlife and animals. Uh, and I found some statements that summarize her position as wanting to ban all um, wet markets uh, that deal with wildlife products. And wet markets mm -hmm. are sort of, um, this. It's a, it's a term that for me came up now also during the corona crisis, describing um, open markets in China where they would serve fish and, or sell fish and meat pretty much from, from market stands. But the actual definition of a wet market is just compared to a dry market that usually sells like... Um, products and technology a wet market just sells usually food um often meat and fish and animal products but also vegetables but and so on everywhere in europe exactly. i mean that's so and in any okay. any weekly market where you go outside and buy your turnips is uh, technically a wet market i'm just saying that because often i find the word wet market associated with a sort of um false superior, superior superiority from western people saying like ah, yeah, these people in china they um cut up their meat in the open street and sell um wildlife meat and so on and and try to um yeah say bad things about this but essentially a wet market is just like an open market like we have them in europe in the us or anywhere else um I remember the first time, like, my sister and I came to Europe, like, we were, I think, like, 12, I was, um, and we saw, yeah, meat markets where you can actually still see the shape of the animal that the meat comes from, and um, very common in Italy, but also, like, all around Europe is that you have the birds hanging by their feet, mm -hmm. um, often with still feathers around the neck. Um, like so the the kind of the head is still pretty with with the feathers and then the rest of the body is plucked so that you can see that it's a bird but then it's also for eating but like for us in Australia everything came sort of cut up in plastic and I mean we, we would get like whole chickens but you wouldn't have this association with like something which still has its, its skin or its feathers attached and that was mm -hmm. like the first um, and I have an argument which is it's much better to see your meat like that because then you understand that meat is dead animal and if you're choosing to eat meat, you're choosing to yeah. have animals die for you to eat them. But this is a different topic. <laughs> yeah, contrary to things that you uh, often find online write, uh, written um, around her work and I found some things um, sort of on a more general perspective that said that she was for the complete abolishment of wet and wildlife markets um, in favor of protecting, uh, protecting local wildlife. Um, she has, uh, Elizabeth Marima has actually much more nuanced uh, stance on the whole issue. Um, she, because when, when you look at especially wildlife markets that have the, I think the biggest impact on um, biodiversity, um, in terms of direct human consumption. I mean, there's many other things like industry and so on. But um, when you look at wildlife markets and you just ban them sort of from an intergovernmental point of view, from, from a UN body, um, 
you will not find a lot of acceptance from the people who use these wet markets, run these wet markets, or wildlife markets specifically. Um, so she is for a much more nuanced approach where you actually work together with the people with like uh, who know the local customs and figure out ways to regulate regulate the use of wildlife, while at the same time preserving cultural. Um, uh, yeah, inheritance uh, cultural um, approaches to the far, like the the consumption, the, the hunting of wildlife, and the selling and the consumption of wildlife. Um, and I found it quite interesting. Um, and uh, a point that she raises um, about the whole issue of wildlife markets is that it's um, we have this image that it's people in in, in rural communities that. Um, that are a threat to biodiversity, but she says that they are often they often farm in a very uh, sustainable way because they're doing this for for a long time and they know how not to deplete their resources. Um, and she actually says that it's usually the people in the cities that want to quench their and here I'm quoting her her selfish dietary choices um, that have the very high demand for specific meats or specific animal products that then lead to the over farming or the overuse of wildlife resources um, and so the regulation of this is very important to her um, and um, it also plays into the whole pandemic that we see today she says that when we take away space that that wildlife can live in uh, we get in closer contact with it because we destroy their habitats we um, uh, move our cities closer to to the to the habitats and that results in a in a closer interaction between wildlife and humans and that then can then lead to the spillover of pathogens or zoonotic diseases and that's why it's another um, very good reason to work harder to increase diversity to protect wildlife and um yeah to pretty much keep humans away to a greater extent from from the wildlife and um yeah i i, I recommend reading the interview it's very interesting and it's really cool to see her with her point of view in such a sort of um reputable or very important position where she can likely have a much uh, a, a pretty big influence on biodiversity so yeah looks pretty cool what she's doing say the name one more time elizabeth mrema and we link to the interview uh in the show notes mm-hmm. let's talk 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 about bias bias bye bye Yeah, um, this time I chose to do something which I'm not sure how I found out about, actually. It's called the End of History Illusion, um, which Mm -hmm. sounded very apocalyptic. So I was embracing those feels. Um, Can I guess? Yeah, you should guess. Is it uh, the illusion that we, in our lifetime, will see the end of human history? No. No. People assume that and think they are the important generation that will see the end of human life. Well, no. probably they won't. Okay. It's somehow like more depressing, but also less self-centered somehow than what this is. Mm-hmm. So this is more about reflection on mm-hmm. on our own development. Um, and I thought I thought this is pretty important because of some things that we've been discussing recently. But obviously, what we we've been talking about generally is that as scientists and as people in the world, it is our job to be constantly learning things. And that's that's come a lot up a lot in the last months, I would say, as well. So the end of history illusion is a psychological illusion 
um, and I'm reading from the wiki here, in which individuals of all ages believe that they have experienced significant personal growth and change, um, like, up to this moment. But that's the end. That's basically the end of history. And their change in the future will not be much more or will only be a small, like, you know, just a little bit more. So it's basically so like... they're pretty much perfect already. Yeah, it is It is kind of this way of looking at yourself. So it's, in one way, that that's a positive act. Uh, you can look at that positively or negatively. You can say, mm -hmm. hey, I'm happy with how I am right now. Or you can say this is negative thing where people tend to think that they are the perfect final product. But it is something where if you say, okay, look back to what we're both 31 now. Oh, no, you're, I'm 32 now, but early 30s. If you look back to your early 20s and you think, okay, I did a lot of change from 20 to 30. <laughs> but now, so much. There you go. Hopefully for the better. <laughs> now, if you think like, will I change that same amount from 30 to 40? It might be hard to imagine making mm. as many radical shifts in thinking. Hopefully you had some of those as you did in those years. Uh, like, I don't know if it's if if I'm more optimistic when I say that I hope I change as much, or if I don't change as much because <laughs> I was I was so much dumber uh, by the age of twenty. So I just hope that right now I don't I'm I'm not as dumb right now as I feel I was now when I was in the twenty in my twenties when I'm looking back from 40. Um, yeah, so the idea is that when you're 40... But at the same 40, time, if I would increase again the same amount I increased from 20 to 30, I would be so incredibly smart <laughs> and such Just a so perfect brilliant. human by so, 40. So and then if I would have the same again when I'm 50... Um, mm. It would just be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think this is arguing that you're going to keep getting better. It just says that you're going to change. So, <laughs> I mean, it's talking uh -huh. about um, changes in taste. Um, although also like growth and mature. I, I, think, I think also growth and like, yeah, understanding of the world is included in that as well. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it, it does definitely seem like you think, oh, yeah, well, you know, of course, you know, if coming from my teens to my 20s, that was a huge step. And then coming from my 20s to my 30s, well, you know, I, I went through, like for me, I went through university, I had my first real partner, I moved countries, I had my first home away from my parents, like these are huge things that happened. And of course, they shaped me. And then when I look into my 30s, it's like, what's... Like, can I possibly shift in, like, have so many things that will then shift the way I think, not just, like, life events, but, like, shifting the way I think. I can imagine it's easier for you to see that because you have a child now and you can see how having a child might change your perspective more. But, yeah. like, I mean, it's already, I can already see things where you interact with the world differently because you're thinking of it in the context of, like, a baby now. Yeah. As well as a 30-year-old man, which which adds something new. But, yeah, I think that that will definitely have an impact. Um I'm just afraid of of um, the stereotype that the next years will just like soar by because everything's focused on on the child. Um, there's less personal growth because it's all about the growth of of my my child. Um, and then suddenly I realize that he's in in uh, going to high school or then to university, and I'm 20 years older and. Looking back, I'm just like, what happened? <laughs> no, again, I mean, this is from what I understand, this end of history illusion is not based on life events. It is based on change. So it's like, yeah. even if you do have this life event of Yona growing up, it should have an impact on you and then it should make you change your views of the world. That's yeah. kind of what I'm, I'm understanding here. But yeah. 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 yeah, it just, anyway, quickly, it was um, originated in a journal article in 2013 by some psychologists, which... Um, 
summarized six studies on more than 19,000 participants participants between the age of 18 and 68. Um, and they looked at like personality, core values, preferences and, and things and saw how they, they changed and what people thought would happen. But mm. yeah, I think the... The point for me is that you you should be constantly changing through your life and um, yeah. yeah, this is a good thing. This is a natural thing. This is a normal thing. Um, and it also allows you to, yeah, take in new experiences and, and I don't know, learn. Please yeah. learn. Please, please be learning all the time. Yeah, that would learning be really is so good. good. <laughs> but like, you know, learn the right things, guys. Don't, um, don't, go <laughs> learn, don't learn that wrong stuff. <laughs> Yeah. yeah and ask us if it's the right or the wrong thing to learn uh, i think we should be the measure of yeah uh, <laughs> the, not, the not your arm i mean obviously you you know when we say we we mean tegan right like yes. just to <laughs> establish Her majesty this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, um should i that's start giving me flashbacks to the terrible subwoofer music that my neighbors keep on playing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but not that much. <laughs> um, I have a, a short thing um, that I found on, <laughs> on Twitter, shared by the account of SciHub. Um, they published, or they, they linked to a story published on Archives, which means that it's a preprint. It hasn't gone through peer review. I fi find it important to stress that. I, I think preprints have great value, but keep in mind um, no peer review yet um, when looking at the findings and what they found is that papers that were downloaded through from sci-hub um, which is this illegal website that uh, gives access to a lot of publications um, uh, they found that they papers that were downloaded from sci-hub uh, were cited 1.72 times more so a 72% increase in their citations um, uh which their conclusion is that open access and easy access to papers works in favor of authors because they actually get cited more because more people can read it. But um, I have me, an argument against yeah, that immediately. It's very hard to tell the order of the events. Is it like popular papers that, that can that get more do uh, downloaded than illegally. Um, and so you first have a very cited paper and then it gets more downloads or do you get more downloads and that leads to um, more citations no, sorry, because they're not, more popular. Not even that. The, the high impact journals have a lot of their stuff behind a paywall. So, and they also like are potentially better at cleaning shit up on the internet so i mean i think at least the paywall thing is 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 definitely true like yeah. again all opinions my own but if you are trying to get to a science paper not only is it likely to be a behind a paywall but it's also likely to cost you a large amount of money as opposed to a smaller amount of money that a lower impact yeah. or less prestigious i'm using little quotey things journal might have so therefore you're more likely to go to sci-hub um Although i think I, I believe um when i remember the abstract is that they looked at um papers from larger journals so they corrected for the impact of the journal so they not, not only say that let's say science that all of the science papers were cited more than all of the i don't know um a small niche journal that just deals with a very small aspect of, of some mm -hmm. biology. Um, so they're corrected for that. Um, but okay. still, I... You win this time, scientists. I think uh, I think it's something to be careful about. I th um, the key message that uh, is in, in the study is uh, that you can use 
the download count from Sci-Hub as a predictor for the citation count. So you, when you sort of model, when you want to find the impact um, of papers or, or, or predict how well a paper will do, taking the uh, download count and into account um, will give you a good a better prediction just like if you look at um, pirate bay for movies and stuff and you look at the downloads there this is also a predictor for the popularity of movies um, which is <laughs> not really a big surprise i think there was mm. for game of thrones or something they even for to calculate the reach of their show, they actually took into account how many people pirated it. Um, it was one of the most pirated shows ever. Um, mm. uh, but they sort of took it into account and said, "Like, look, this is just, this means we reach even more people." Um, what's the trend? Is it a linear trend or is it like exponential? What's the relationship and what's the R squared? Uh, I don't know. I haven't read through the paper. I looked at the abstract where they say it's one point seven two times more. Um, so yeah, go and check out the preprint on archives um, if if you're interested in in more details. What oh, do you have? I have I have um, funny names, funny names and funny titles. So the first thing I wanted to point out, one of my friends sent me the the title of a paper. Um, it's called A Little Snip of This, A Little Snip of That, where SNP is SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's the discovery of 1, uh, 116 single nucleotide polymorphism markers to enable the rapid identification of individual Pacific walruses. Not important. I love the f use of the fun title, which is A Little <laughs> Snip of This, A Little Snip of That. So shout out to Jeffrey M. Cook and colleagues who came up with that. And on a very similar note, there is... A publication that came out in eLife that is the E2 Marie Kondo and the CTLH-E3 ligase clear deposited RNA binding proteins during the maternal to zygotic transition. So it's basically something which is in charge of cleaning up and therefore they named it Marie Kondo. <laughs> so again, big shout out to um, Michael Zav Zavortink, sorry about that, um, and colleagues um, for coming up with a Marie Kondo paper. I think that they're the ones who gave it the original name, um, <laughs> but I'll put a link to that as well. Uh, this protein sparks joy, and this protein does not spark joy. <laughs> yes, and we're going to clean it up, clean it up. Um, yeah, that's that's really cool. Um that's that's really nice i like it when when titles i mean it's it's really effective if if i see a title like this and it's from my field i'm so much more likely to read the paper than if it's just um a much more dry and descriptive title um so i, mean, I think it's it helpful also has its uh, the descriptive titles also have definitely the, the their value because they're descriptive they tell you what it's about um, but when it comes to people get, getting people excited about the paper i like to have a fun title yeah i don't know i think um i think with the genes and the the protein naming it also can be quite helpful because i'm much more likely to remember what a marie kondo gene does than yeah if i had a, a random acronym name like yeah it's helpful um uh, I have an article that I found uh, that's called How to Make STEM a Safe Place for Trans and Non-Binary People. Um, and it's an article um, uh, published on nextweb.com uh, written by Tristan Green. And it's an interview with... Um, now I'm just trying to... Um, with Charlie Knight, uh, who is... Um, a non-binary editor, business owner, and activist, and it's quite interesting um, to read because it like it de it 
gives you what the title promises, some tips about uh, making STEM a safe place for trans and non-binary people. But it also addresses, Tristan Green addresses his own um, discomfort with his own ability to address such an issue and how he overcame this and how he talked to the activist um, and then leads into the actual uh, interview. And I found this quite interesting because I feel that uh, very often people who aren't, um, don't have a lot of contact points with the LGBTQA plus movement that they... Um, yeah, they they are afraid of messing things up. They're afraid of saying the wrong words, using the wrong pronouns, and so on. Um, which is what also happened to um, the journalist here, who himself is uh, non, uh, I think non-binary or at least uh, queer. Um, but yeah, so he's he's sort of adjacent to it, and still he had um, he had insecurities about it, and I found it interesting to address that, and then it leads to the actual things that can be done um, for for STEM, and it deals a lot with very basic things, and I think that even span greater areas than just uh, STEM, uh, which is about pronouns and visibility, um, because very often the misgendering and using the, the, the wrong pronouns or dead names and, and things like that uh, are very hurtful and exclusive um, when you want to be inclusive and yeah, not hurtful to people. And uh, so the four points that they raise in this article is, the first, first of all, it's absolutely fine to just ask for pronouns or to uh, introduce yourself and introduce yourself with your pronouns, even if you might think you have the sort of standard pronouns that are uh, assigned to, to your gender. Um, but by actively calling them out, you make sure that it's like, just from the appearance of somebody you can't assume the pronouns that um, they want to use um, so that's the first thing it's fine to ask or, or if you want to do that you, I could say like hi I'm Joram I use he him um, it's nice to meet you um, and with that you open up the possibility for um, the other person to tell you their pronouns as well then yeah I've definitely heard some discussions that that's better to offer instead of asking because yeah. some people might not feel comfortable or safe in different environments to give so the best thing you can do is normalize offering your own if you feel safe to do that in your environment as opposed to yeah. ex putting it on somebody else and expecting them to to give from the first point. And part of that is using pronouns in your bios as well on social media. Because if only um, uh, trans and non-binary people explicitly uh, tell the pronouns, they're so also putting sort of a highlight on them for this, um, uh, which can also be alienating and exclusive. And if everybody would just put in their, in their social media bios their preferred pronouns, um, that would make it much... yeah much reduce the sort of the speciality the the sort of extraordinary part of putting your pronouns in your bio um, you can also have it on your signature and your name if that's something yeah. um so yeah if you have a company sign off or a personal sign off you can add add your pronouns there that's actually a very good point yeah um the other thing is to just normalize uh, using they and them when you speak about people where you don't know what pronouns they want to use um which is for me as a non-native speaker i struggle with this because i sort of i i learned it in school you use the specific pronouns and um sort of the not the specific the, the standardized pronouns um and i'm not that to me it's not so so uh the 
ordinary to use they um mm -hmm. like here they have the example where it's like it's something that we do anyway already in english when it's a bank robber you say which way did they go um you already in, in sort of these cases you already use that and it's fine to extend that and use that more often and when you see a person even though they might look female or male um you can still just say um look uh, just go and ask them instead of going to ask her or him um so that's also some uh, like a very small change that but that makes your language much more inclusive and along with that is the the point of practicing it um just use it for example with your friends or in a in a surrounding where you're much more comfortable um where we, yeah where you can try out the the new and and sort of improved language um and where you can try out introducing yourself in friend circles and that before you sort of use it in a more uh, professional context where you have additional levels of stress um, apart from just thinking about the right things to say. Um, and finally, uh, the, the fourth point here is relax. Um, uh, it's um, it's not that hard to change just a few, few words. Don't sort of tense up. Don't get stressed about um, these things because it really doesn't take a lot to be um, a lot more inclusive. Um, so yeah, that's the article, mm. how to make STEM a safe place for trans and non-binary people. Uh, and yeah, I also learned some things. I I, <laughs> I went and checked if uh, in our Twitter bio, if we had uh, our pronouns and we do. Um, I think you, you must have put them there because <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not that aware yet, but like things like reading things like that changed that. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, and just kind of related to that, so there's LGBT STEM Day, which for the last couple of years has been on July 5th, so it actually would be this coming, I think, Saturday maybe, um, in a couple of days' time. But the date has been moved this year to November 18, so this is based on the fact that it will be an anniversary of an American astronomer and gay activist, Frank Cameroni. So uh, he was a person who was a gay man, um, he was hired for the US Army, but was fired because they found out he was gay, and then was um, barred from all future federal government employment, and he then appealed that and took it to court. So they've changed the LGBT STEM day to kind of uh, recognize his role um, as a scientist, as, a, as an astronomer, in, in kind of pushing this anti-discrimination um, for people in STEM. So we can celebrate that in November now. Um, if you want to find out more, it's prideinstem.org, but we'll also put the link in the show notes. Okay, I'm going to talk about finding giant things. So this is from IFL Science. There's three articles that came out, which is discovery of giant organisms, which I think is a great topic. So um, recently they found in the Northern Hemisphere something that looks like a giant penguin. Um, so this is quite a terrifying image to me personally. I love penguins, but and a giant penguin sounds a bit nasty. And it they do. I mean, it lived 62 million years ago, so I think the threat to us now is not so There's so high. Pictures, like as, as large as a a human. Yeah, it was 1.65 meter high. I think this one. Yeah. Um. No, this one is the sorry. New Zealand one was sixty-two million years ago. These ones are like thirty million years ago, but I still like probably still far enough back to not be a threat. Mm. They're called plotopterids, plotopterids maybe. Um, so they're not penguins, but they're a bit like penguins. But also, I think um, 
there are orcs up in the north. So now we just have these kind of lesser orcs, which are kind of small and cute and look a little bit like puffins. Um, it's A-U-K. Um, and they're kind of penguin-like. And I think actually the the French word for um, a penguin is like manchette and the French word for an orc is like penguin or something like this. And they used to be great orcs, which also look like giant penguins, but they're separate. Anyway, this is a whole different thing. I love penguins, so this is why I care. But other great animals that have been found, um, there was also the recent discovery in South Australia of a giant wombat. So it's, again, not exactly a wombat. It's related to wombats and koalas, but it's separate enough from those two things to have its own new taxonomic family. So a bit what we were talking about earlier in the show, we're constantly discovering new things that are different from what we've ever seen before. Although this is only at the family level. So just one above genus, we have family, then genus, then species. Um, And yeah, this is a 150 kilogram wombat that was running around presumably bashing into things and making giant square cubic poos 25 million years ago in Australia. Um, And the final thing that is giant is a giant, very, very small thing. So um, at the bottom of the Pacific somewhere, people recently found a very large single-celled organism. So let me just see if I can find... um, yeah, the genus is named Moana Minna, after the Hawaiian mean uh, word Moana, which means ocean. And it's, yeah, a single cell, but it can reach up to 7.5 centimeters, which is very impressive, I would mm. say. So it's it's not actually giant as compared to the wombat and the penguin, but it's pretty impressive for a single-celled organism. So these are all via IFL Science. Again, we'll put the links in the show notes. Yeah, uh, I looked up at some of the some of the things that you said um, while you were talking about them. And yeah, um, I'm I'm happy uh, about the smaller things that we have now. Um, and you were right about the French thing um, about uh, a manchot is a, a penguin and a penguin is uh, I don't know if it was an orc, but uh, yeah, I think it was an orc, like a part of this. It's an orc. Family. Family of it's birds. one of those it was one of those realizations for me when somebody who spoke French as their first language said this like I was talking about penguins and they were like, Oh, penguins like the ones found in the north and I'm like, No, of course not. Penguins are all only in <laughs> Australia and I was quite um abrupt about it. I was like are you stupid? But it wasn't, it was this thing where it's like, no, I'm just being French. stupid myself because, yeah, I'm stupid because I'm not understanding that there's a translation thing happening here yeah. where the word penguin is a different word in French and that's like, that's on me then because it's a communication thing. And yeah, yeah, that was revealing about my own stupidities, I thought. Okay, um, I think I'll, I'll move on with my next fact. Um, and I found a short video. Um, Actually, where did I find it? Did I, f- I click on the link? It's on ScienceMag. Um, it talks yeah. about the angiosperm explosion and uh, recent new findings about it. Have you heard about the angiosperm explosion? Yeah. Good. Um, <laughs> I was, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, your arm. Um. It's this, it's this uh, thing that we f- know from fossils where um, just some, some hundred million years after the first angiosperm f- uh, emerge, and these angiosperms are the flower and fruit bearing plants compared to the um, gymnosperms that are not fruit bearing and not flowering. Um, yeah, the nakeds. 
naked seeds and the other ones are the covered seeds. Um, so the angiosperms, just 100 million years, which is an, a very short time period on an evolutionary scale, after the first emergence of um, the angiosperms, we suddenly find um, many, many different species in, in this group um, from fossil records. And for a long time... Uh, up, uh, until very recently, we wondered how this could happen. Why? What? What changed that we suddenly had this massive explosion, diversification in species? And there was the idea that it's linked to also the emergence of pollinators because um, angiosperms, they um, where gymnosperms, they relied on on air to on, and wind to move their their seeds. The uh, angiosperms, they relied on pollinators to come in and move this uh, the, the pollen from um, from plant to plant. And so they thought it's sort of a co-evolution thing that um, there's suddenly more pollinators that diversified, and then also um, co-evolving to that and the plants diversified as well but now researchers did analysis of the chloroplast genome um, of the dna sequences there and um, on on many different species and build a large phylogenetic tree figuring out when did these things grow apart and then use the fossils that we have um, to make some sort of key dates in there where they know okay we have this fossil so we know this this gene genome or um, this sequence is this uh, this old and then based on that they could build the entire tree and what I figured out is that it's actually the angiosperms are much older um, so they've been around for much longer and also the angiosperm explosion wasn't in such a very short narrow period it was stretched out over a larger um, period which makes it much more likely that sort of standard evolutionary events happened um, and that they diversified over a longer period of time. There was not, nothing particularly happening in this um, short amount of time um, in the crustaceous period, um, but it actually spans back into the Jurassic period that angiosperms uh, emerged and diversified. Um, and they did that based on, fossil, uh, on the genetic sequences from plants, but also from pollinators. And they figured out that also pollinators were around for much longer than we, th than we know from fossils. And it's a cool sort of integrative study of using archaeological evidence and then genetic markers and very sort of modern molecular biology um, to reconstruct the, the entire or a much larger picture of um, evolution and telling us that, yeah, things um, are, like in this case, the angiosperms are actually much older and uh, diversified over a longer time period. I accidentally stumbled onto a, a personal account that was very pro-modesty in women to the point where women are not allowed to wear trousers and should wear skirts that are like at the ankles basically and don't show the shape of the body. Um, and I spent a good hour or so reading the different rules that that person had based on this modesty. I didn't do any comments or anything because it's their personal space and they can put that what they want. I don't believe in like going and attacking people in their personal space. There were some very disgusting things on there though, um, especially related to women's role in being physically harmed by men, which I do not agree with. But the funny side of that was the question of, Yoram, I'm going to ask you, imagine you're a woman and you want to do sports 
Yeah. And the rules of modesty say that you can't do sports. Yeah. Um, you can't, sorry, you can't wear pants. Should you wear pants to do the sports? Because it would be hard to do the sports in the skirt. What's, 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 the, okay, what's, what's the appropriate solution here? Um, I wear pants and then I put a skirt on top of that or I buy one of the like um, ballroom dancer dresses that are pretty much very fancy uh, skirts and dresses but also very sporty and active clothes um, and then I would have my ballroom dance outfit although they're often quite revealing but I would have a very modest ballroom outfit dance outfit um, and then do I don't know cardio in it or whatever okay that's not actually a bad answer. That was very thoughtful. It's incorrect. <laughs> the correct answer is, you're a woman, you shouldn't do sport, it will break your hymen. That's what I wanted to say. I didn't want to say it about the hymen, but I wanted to say, like, why are you doing sport? Um, like That's exactly the answer is, don't do sport, you're a woman. And it reminded me of... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's actually upsetting in the context of people believing this stuff and still thinking that there are these gender issues. Um, but I... I did find this quite funny because I've been listening to a podcast called Zealot, which is about um, cults. But one of these cults, the cult leader believed that women shouldn't do exercise because it could like displace their uterus. So if women like went jogging, then their, their, their uterus would shift and that would make it impossible for them to bear children. And the, the hosts of the podcast who were clearly not very sporty were saying, if ever there was an argument for me to go running, like getting rid of this pesky uterus would be like a really nice, like yeah. not having to deal with all the like extra stress would be a nice argument for, which I thought, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's a nice way to joke about people who have horrible opinions and are objectively wrong. Um, the thing the that world. worries me about people posting these sort of things is, um, not that they personally have to believe. Um, I mean, yeah, as you said, everybody is free to believe the crazy things that people like to believe, but that they feel that it's okay to post this and that they feel safe posting this in terms of they feel it will meet acceptance. They feel comfortable with Yeah, this, this is a Trump argument, right? Like, like Trump saying things is is bad, but the fact that Trump can say things and people are okay with it is is ten times worse than Trump saying things. Like the fact yeah. that nothing's happened and he keeps on saying like this is this is the same argument. And in this case, like, yeah, I'm a bit so if it's like one very small person and they're publishing to their friends with their Instagram with ten people, it's yes, I think they're still objectively wrong and I think their opinions are in fact dangerous and I, I as a I as a lady would like to continue to be able to wear shorts and to show as much of my legs as I please. Thank you very much. Um, this person had chosen the way, the way I found out about this person is because they had chosen to go on the site of a non-binary person and tell this person that they were disgusting for sharing stuff on their site. So that's how I found out about this person is that they had made comments of like, you should be ashamed or something like this. Um, and the, the person had kind of posted the link, um, to this person is trying to like damage me in my own space. So that's, so yeah, this is this is always this discussion of again in order to have ultimate like I and mean, we've discussed this before I think like in order to have um proper freedom of people you can't have freedom of like, all people like to have true safety and I mean what's what's the right way of saying this you are you know it I mean it's it's this idea that that your freedom ends where the other person's freedom begins right it's yeah. um 
that you are free to do whatever you want as long as you don't limit the freedoms of other people. Uh, and so, yeah, you can live in your own secluded, bigoted world, but if you try to bring that bigotry to other people, that's where you're wrong. Um, mm. And that's Yes, this is also, like, for me, this argument, if this person has a very small platform, I'm less inclined to care about... Yeah. I mean, they're not really having an impact, but I mean, then when they're trying to go after somebody else on that person's, in that person's space, like, yeah. you can go away now. Like, just, yeah. yeah. Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> um, anyway, I was, um, it was very nice being informed about my female body and all the different <laughs> ways I should feel shame about it. Um, I definitely feel like in the context of COVID, I, my shame has been slipping. I'm mostly at home by myself with another lady and a cat. And, you know, why not? Why not reinvest in my need to rip everybody hair from, from my body? And I don't know. What else should I be ashamed of, Yoram? Um, oh, so many things. Like voicing your opinions. No, no. Voicing my opinions. <laughs> yeah. I very rarely iron stuff. Um, my fingernails are super dirty. I have not trimmed my toenails in quite some time. Um, <laughs> Too much information. But on the topic really of... Really? Toenails? Toenails is where you draw the line? <laughs> no, that you, that you overall like have very dirty uh, nails. Um, they're not I mean, dirty. They're, they're soily because I... I plant things like i was planting tomatoes yeah, it's, the other it's, day it's, it's 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 fine i'm not making any rules that you have to do these things be clean and use soap <laughs> um it's you, no, don't you should have to use soap that. and especially on your hands you need to be washing your hands very well right now <laughs> um yeah but on the topic of bigotry and being a hypocrite a hypocrite um mm -hmm. which is not a hippogriff a uh, different thing a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite, be a hippogriff. <laughs> I found sense. a short article um, uh, tell, uh, um, telling the tale of a mother and her journey away from the dangers of scientific evidence. And, oh, dear. <laughs> uh, con contrary to the thing that you just uh, told us about, this is not actually based on real belief it's mocking real belief it's a, sat a satirical article and a quote that um I, a short quote that i want to read that should uh, make you go to the actual article and read the whole thing is um my work also includes an intense regimen of exposing fake research i have become very adept at spotting fake research the trick is to look for evidence that counters my argument in any way and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it goes on like that in the article and um, it's actually quite fun. Yeah, It deals with this whole idea that people think that they are so much smarter than scientific evidence that has been going on for, for years and years and that um, them posting about it on Facebook is the right thing to do. And another favorite part in that is that uh, science has often been wrong and so um, in, in her mind, in the author's mind, it's pretty much a 50-50 case whether or not a scientific study is correct or wrong. And would you base the health of on your children on evidence that based on a 50 50 chance that it's true no you would not and therefore science is as bogus um and it's oh just dear. it's a little light-hearted article to read um in between a lot of the horrible things so instead of looking at people telling you what to wear read about uh, about this um uh -huh. it's a fun little it's it fitting to the joke day today <laughs> do you have another fun fact or should we go to our uh, cat slash animal fact 
It's not a cat slash animal fact, Yoram. That's not a thing. It's a it's cat, a cat fact. fact. Um, I found something on Instagram just a couple of minutes ago before we started recording. Um, if it's a nice it's way. It's fine. Of- you can say that it was while I was monologuing, you were browsing Instagram and you found something you're putting on the show now. I have a busy life and I have to correct somebody's <laughs> thesis still. So <laughs> let me multitask. No, um, no, really, I saw it before I said it, but I saw it via Paloma Projects, but I'm not sure if that's the original source because I saw it somewhere else as well. It was a nice way of visualizing um, COVID. And the quote is something like, you and six of your friends are crafting together. Mm-hmm. One of your friends is using glitter. How many projects have <laughs> glitter on them? And that's the best, that's the most <laughs> clear way to understand. And also, I think like COVID, you know, you could be infectious for 10 to 14 days, right? Like that's the window. That's very accurate for getting glitter out of your person and your holes. Like <laughs> if there was glitter anywhere near you, you're going to be secreting glitter for at least. Okay, I have one final, not really a fact, um, but a film uh, that I would like to suggest that you and I watch together, Yoram, and comment on while watching and then do a kind of film review thing. Um, Somebody sent this to me as who is somebody I know who likes plants and also science. So the film is called Little Joe. I'm not sure if you've heard about it yet. Little what? Little Joe. Little Joe, no. Mm. So it starts with... Alice Woodard, I'm just going to read the first two lines of plot. Alice Woodard is a plant breeder who works in a lab that focuses on creating new strains of flowers, while her colleague Bella is failing at creating a hardy plant that will survive even weeks of undernourishment or neglect. Alice and her team have successfully created a flower that requires more care than an ordinary plant, but which makes their owners happy. (laughs) So I think you and I are going to read this and have a lot of fun. It sounds like... yeah. Um, it sounds like there's pollination of people involved from what I've said. I want you to not read the plot and I want us to sit down together and watch this film and do some sort of reaction shot to this because I think it's going to be a joy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's figure yes? out Let's figure out a way we yes. can do this and um, yeah, watch this movie together or do a little movie club afterwards. Maybe we can do this as a special episode on the feed um, for you guys. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that sounds really cool. It's with with Ben Wishaw, um, known from The Perfume and other movies where he's like uh, like a weird, scrawny guy. Uh, But he's also Paddington. Yeah, I think he's is he even the the voice of Paddington? No, no, no. Yeah, he's the voice of Paddington Bear. No, then it's uh, he's very that that that's absolutely non creepy Paddington. Um, my film Paddington is a creep why does he like marmalade so much no, there pa- are so the, the many the movie Paddington and also the second movie of Paddington they're heartwarming feel good movies they're amazingly filmed and done and told have an amazing cast um, they're, they're just great uh, I'm just can... saying like there's plum jam why, why marmalade <laughs> because um, they got in touch with like I think they his his parents um in in the jungle or in a, in a forest or wherever they got in touch with um like a human explorer who brought jam and taught them how to make jam and for because of that oh, no. they always made jam and uh then when he had to leave his parents he sort of brought a tradition of jam with him it's uh, or marmalade of, of marmalade and this reminds him of home um okay Yaron wants us to watch paddington that's the take-home really cool. message but, no, but first watch little joe 
No, um, we have we can't we cannot say you have to watch Little Joe because we okay. haven't watched Little Joe. We will watch Little Joe for you. You watch Paddington one and two in the meantime, and then we talk again again um, and tell you if Little Joe is good or not. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> that's a good plan. Also, I haven't started reading our book for book club yet. Uh, yeah, we have a book club coming up. We are recording actually not this weekend, but it's the weekend. this weekend. It's this weekend. True, yeah, it's this weekend, but yeah, yeah. My, my time feeling is off. So you have very few days to read the book. Um, the book, uh, for the people who want to tune in when we release the episode, but want to read the book beforehand, it's called The Hidden Genius of Plants by Makuso, I think is the last name. Um, and your arm already has notes, from what I can tell. <laughs> I can only, yeah, um, I, I have feelings about that book. Um, I feel like maybe we're just we're too critical to do a book club. Like maybe <laughs> no, we like, should I, be nicer I like people. Things. It's not that I don't like any things. It's then Stefano Man Mancuso is the author of the book, The Revolutionary Genius of Plants, a new understanding of plant intelligence and behavior. We're reading that for the book club. You can hear our opinions about the book club probably somewhere around next week. We'll link to that probably also on our Twitter and stuff. And um, then the other thing before we go to the, the plant fact is, are there any plant scientists out there who want to join our little pod group to go to ASPB's Plant Biology 2020? Um, because it's quite expensive to go as an individual. If you're not a um, ASPB member, it's 500 US dollars. But there's quite cheap, relatively group prices. So I think for five people, it goes down to $900 already for the five people. And then every extra person you have, it's only like 190 or 150 extra um, dollars on top of that. So we're trying to form a group. Um, if we have four more people, <laughs> we can get a hugely discounted price compared to going individually. And it would be cool to keep in touch with what's happening in the plant world. So if anybody wants to join, I from what I understand, you just need to know the names and the email addresses of the other people when you pay so that you can kind of say, hey, I'm linked with these yeah. people in a group. So it's not like we have to send money to anybody. It seems quite safe. It just means that you have to commit to registering to a, a meeting. It's three days. It's at the end of July. Um, yeah, and, and it's important. It's an online conference. I don't know oh, if you online, said it. Yeah. it's Sorry, all I of didn't that. Say that. online. It's a couple of days, and um, they have talks and workshops. They have a lot of sessions running um, at the same time. So it's really there's a lot of opportunities of things. I mean, I went a couple of years ago, and it's there's there's a ton of stuff happening. So yeah. So if you are plant team? scientists or interested in plant science and want to to join, uh, contact us specifically. Contact Tegan. Um, she's organizing all Please of this. Please be our friend because we don't have <laughs> enough friends who want to go to. Like, we don't the have friends who are nerdy we, enough. We have we have friends in plant science, but they're often in a privileged position that they get already the full ticket paid for, and so they don't really want to join us because. Well, they, I think also they they were a little bit more organized than us. In fairness to them, and they did this like probably six months ago. Right. Whereas, I mean, so we couldn't have managed to go in person. That would have been too much cost. But now it's virtual. It seems like a, a new opportunity where we can attend by taking only a little bit of time off work. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the world has changed. And this is also, I can link to something else. There was actually a... Okay, so there was a career column in, in Nature that came out just last week, so on the 24th of June. It's written by Christina Bidman and uh, Kristen Meath and Renee Bonsack. Sorry for names. I'm, I'm always terrible at pronouncing things. Um, and it's kind of discussing 
how we do online presentations and they're trying to approach it in a way that's it's not just a stopgap or something to deal with during COVID times, but they're arguing that basically the way we've been running conference is basically bull crap, bull dust, bull not goodness. Um, because Manure. <laughs> bull, bull excrement, excremento. Um, because... So the stand first is that flying around the world to give a 10-minute presentation to an exhausted audience is a model long overdue for reform. Um, and there are sustainability researchers, which is also one of the big arguments about changing the way we do conferences, especially if you're somebody who's interested in like biodiversity or sustainability, then the carbon footprint of going to these conferences is is quite inexcusable. We've discussed this in, in the past. So... Um, they're discussing what they recently did to try and set up a, a accessible, interesting um, digital virtual conference. And part of the process was actually that they created a new conference virtual hosting thing. It's called iChair. Mm-hmm. So they've made this new platform. But they also discussed the idea of how, you know, you have to, you can't just try and make something that was supposed to be an in-person conference happen online, you have to be accepting of the fact that people's energy and attention span is shorter when they're viewing online content than if they're content than if they're in person. So they discuss these different um, issues. So go and check out that on um, Nature. We'll put again the link there. And also, yeah, as I mentioned, they have this platform. I, I don't know how it is, but they said they basically developed it to, to fill a gap that they found. So I yeah. share yeah job job <laughs> and with that um i think we're ready to talk about our cat fact today it's not a cat fact is it you don't have any cats no it's a squirrel fact and i think it fits with the theme that we talked a lot about squirrels recently um i found it on the bbc news and uh it's just it's it's, it's just so extremely cute uh, i want you all to open the link uh just after this episode um, and after you've stopped driving your vehicle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, when you stop your vehicles, um, check out this video. It's called The Orphan Baby Squirrel Eating Video uh, Went Viral. And there is a very cute sound. Have you opened it, Tegan? Are you listening to it? I will play yeah, the sound. Yeah, can you hear that weird noise? I will make, oh, I play, play the, the sound, sound now in the recording. I... It's 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 a short video. It's just um, somebody um, was following a, a squirrel mother and her babies, and then the squirrel mother was run over by a car, and she started feeding the babies. Oh um, my god! Um, and so she then spent That's over. That's not a happy story, Yara. She spent over a hundred hours with the squirrels, sort of, yeah, feeding, them, making sure that they're all right. So um, she saved the squirrels, and then now she's in touch with. Um, like animal rescue specialists that told her to like reduce the feeding so that they learn to mm. to fend for themselves. Because she was she accidentally domesticated these baby squirrels, which is um, not ideal. Yeah, but she filmed them and took photographs, and they're just so extremely cute. You have like these small squirrels jumping around and nibbling on seeds and playing with each other, and it's just like very pretty and beautiful to look at. Uh, if you want to read more about plant science, you can go to plantspipettes.com where we publish articles every week. We had a couple of cool articles um, because I wrote them <laughs> I was going to say that's, you've never said that when I write the articles this time you say we had cool articles um, so in the 
past articles, uh, we wrote about uh, how the soil composition drives diversity um, in uh, plant populations. We talk about how when bumblebees bite plants, uh, what they that they trigger um, responses in the plants and how they sort of uh, have this interplay between uh, bumblebees and plants. Um, and also some other uh, less important articles. Um, <laughs> And yeah, go check out plantsandpipettes.com um, where you find more plant science. You can also find us on social media. So on Facebook and Instagram, we're at Plants and Pipettes. There you normally talk to me. And then on Twitter, we're at Plants Pipettes. And that's usually Yarm running the show over there. Uh, you can rate us on iTunes or we, wherever you listen to podcasts. I saw that more and more podcast players and apps and whatnot have rating functions in their own catalog. Wherever you find us, um, give us as many stars as possible and uh, tell your friends about us. That would be really helpful and cool. Mm -hmm. But nice things. Yeah, tell them nice things about us, please. Mm. Yoram has quite good facial hair. <laughs> yeah, please tell them that. It's a podcast with the guy with the quite good facial hair not amazing quite good our opening and closing music is caravana by <laughs> philip gross and, and derailing was brought to you today by Tika. <laughs> and trying to keep it together it's me joram um <laughs> goodbye. How's that going for you? <laughs> goodbye everybody <laughs> <laughs>